You're listening to The Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. The Togetherings are recorded conversations with Alaskans from all walks of life, sharing their perspectives on big questions that touch us all. Each series shares a common theme that is explored across episodes. Hello and welcome to The Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. This is Simonetta, and I'm co-hosting this episode with Ken Ilman, representing the Mental Health Mosaics, an arts and journalism project by Up North, our partners for this conversation series on supporting mental health. I am. Hello. This is the second conversation of this series about supporting mental health, and today we're going to talk about youth perspectives on mental health. Um, and then before we start, we want to acknowledge that we are recording these conversations in Anchorage, Alaska, on the Naina land. To talk about youth mental health, we have two guests, Claire Rainier and Keegan Blaine. Claire, I'd love it if you could tell us one or two things that you think would be important for people to know about you. Okay, well, currently I'm working for NAMI Anchorage, which is the Anchorage affiliate for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. But I was also um, a facilitator and a storyteller for MHAT's Mental Health Advocacy Through Storytelling for two years, junior and senior year of high school. Um, I also really like skiing and that's me. Yep. <laughs> awesome. What about you, Keegan? Uh, yeah, so I'm Keegan. Um, I was also a facilitator and a storyteller for the first season of MHAD's Mental Health Advocacy Through Storytelling, um, a project that was greatly supported by NAMI of Alaska. Um, shout out to Jason Lassard. We really appreciate him. Um, and uh, I'm currently a student at the University of Pittsburgh, but um, you know, I'm from, from Anchorage, from Alaska, Alaskan at heart. Um, and I've recently really gotten into um, reading horror, specifically Stephen King. Um, I don't know, it's something that in what little free time I have, I've been doing and I'm really enjoying it. Great. Um, we usually start by asking our guests, what's your connection or experience with today's topic of youth perspectives on mental health? Yeah. So, I mean, Claire and I both kind of have this connection through um, our initial connection through MHATS. Um, Claire, I don't know if you want to talk about um, MHATS or if you want me to launch into a little spiel about it or. You should go for it. Okay, so um, Hazard Mental Health Advocacy Through Storytelling is um, a storytelling and advocacy pro or advocacy through storytelling project, hence the name, um, that was started by, um, well, high school students, um, juniors and seniors in high school um, in the Anchorage School District. Um, and it was kind of brought about by this conversation that kind of got started um, um, through kind of like a, a network of people that had all met um, uh, or students that had all met kind of in various ways. And we kind of started this conversation or Natalie Frazier started this conversation of, um, well, we all love storytelling. We all see the power of storytelling. And when I say we, I mean, this kind of um, hodgepodge of friends who knew each had different relationships to each other, knew each other, and said, so we all saw the power of storytelling, um, and we all see this sort of need, um, uh, very strong need, actually, for mental health awareness, for mental health advocacy, specifically geared toward youth in our community, um, 
you know, there there's a lot of conversation in general around mental health and more so, especially with the pandemic going on. This started, um, this project started in uh, fall of 2019, I believe. Um, so 2018. this was 2018. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I can't believe that. <laughs> fall of 2018. Um, so this was, you know, pre-pandemic um, and we see that need even more now, but um, kind of started this conversation and we're like, well, why not combine the two? Um, Storytelling can be a great platform for all people. We took a lot of inspiration from especially Arctic Entries, which is a a great um, community um, program that has really, really blossomed. um, And from what I've seen, um, we took a lot of inspiration there and kind of just went for it. Um, We use that platform now. Claire as a facilitator, um, me kind of an ex-facilitators, more taking a little bit of a support mode um, and use that now to give high school students around Anchorage um, and surrounding area um, in the Valley um, a platform to share their experiences with mental health and encourage others to, to speak up and um, you know advocate for themselves. How do you ensure that that's a safe space? Claire. <laughs> sure, I'll take it. Yeah. Um, I think at the beginning it was a safe place because the people who founded it wanted it to happen. And so, and that's what they wanted it to be. And so it was already a safe space. And from there, I think a really great community was created where the people there reached out to their own friends who they thought would be interested in empaths. And they joined and they kind of continued to foster that safe community and right now like it's totally out of the hands of um the founders and completely completely new people and like time and again the people when they say like what they really liked about being a part of mhats was quote the vibe which i know is super vague but also really makes me appreciate and like it's super makes me super happy that like that has continued um and i think like one of the ways that we make it a safe place is that facilitators are peers who have gone through similar things as the members who are the same age, who are just trying to find their way too. Um, They're super passionate, they're super kind, they're super forgiving and understanding and they are going through, you know, when they can't show up to a meeting, um, like if a facilitator can't show up for a meeting for their own mental health, they're certainly going to understand if a member can't show up for a meeting for their own mental health too or whatever obligation they have to meet. So I think having it be super student-led, peer-led makes it a really great place. Claire, if you mind, I chip in. We also, I know, um, especially in the first session when we were still trying to puzzle things out, create a little bit of a curriculum um, and figure out how exactly we wanted to approach um, teaching storytelling, especially around topics that can be very sensitive to an audience that might, you know, have certain triggers or, um, you know, navigating topics that can be very graphic at times. We did have a lot of um, conversations with Jason Jason, um, and other staff at NAMI about about safe storytelling, pretty much, and about um, using language that is appropriate um, for all audiences when now, but still not taking away from the gravity of stories. Um, and uh, and in that, you know, educating the facilitators on those, like as peer leaders, we could then bring that to our safe space so that if there was a storyteller who was maybe 
drifting into a territory that could be a little bit, you know, a little bit uncomfortable for others to the point where there might be like triggering aspects of it. There were safe ways where we could still validate the story and be like, hey, we understand that we're you're telling this very important, you know, very necessary story. Um, but there are safer ways to go about it. And, you know, there's language choice and different things. Um, and so I think it, definitely a combination of like this, this peer only aspect, this peer leadership aspect and a combination of education and educating the facilitators before we started the sessions and while making the curriculums that kind of created this. Um, really the one of the, the safest spaces that you know you could hope for um, for a vulnerable youth population. So when you all say mental health, that's a term that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I'm curious as to what it means to each of you. Um, for me, I was thinking about this and I, when I think of mental health, I think of good mental health and I know that it also includes poor mental health as well. But for me, good mental health is very much about you know, like not the absence of mental illness, but more so kind of feeling and not necessarily feeling happy, but um, feeling empowered and content and having the ability to cope and feeling um, able to overcome situations um, easily. And I like I can tell myself that you know, I can be overwhelmed and sad and have good mental health, but it's when those feelings feel insurmountable and, you know, unconquerable, that's when I feel like I have poor mental health. Um, and I also just think mental health incorporates like a lot of things, a lot of factors, you know, like biological and neurological and environmental and situational and all those sorts of things. Um, and it also connects to your physical health, but those are the feelings that I feel about good mental health and poor mental health. Yeah, Claire, when I think of mental health too, I definitely tie it um, with feelings, but also very closely with my physical health. Um, and I think as um, community like advocates, I think Claire, you and I have both probably gotten this question a few times, and I think I answer it a different way every single time. Um, but as like my experience um, with mental health advocacy has gone on, I think I've kind of landed on uh, this like tying it with physical health like you know what is mental health it's you know maintenance of like the health of your mind and it's also but that whether that's you know that you're happy or that you're acknowledging and knowing how to acknowledge that you're feeling a certain way or that you knowing how to acknowledge that you see your mental health declining and how do you take care of it it's knowing how to like take care of yourself in the same way that you would take care of your body and it's knowing how to grow your mental strength and your mental, you know, fortuity the same way that you would grow your physical strength by going to the gym or by taking vitamins. Um, I think that one is kind of something that is um, especially overlooked is it's you grow your mind the same way that you can grow your body. And it's not just education. It's also knowing your boundaries, knowing your limits and knowing how to set those boundaries and limits to others so that um, you can protect your well-being. So what what sparked you both to try to advocate for these issues? And and this is two-part question. One, what sparked you both? But then two, what do you do to make sure that this is a really inclusive process and that it's valuing the perspectives of a lot of different people from different 
racial and cultural backgrounds from, you know, different queer identities, that sort of thing. Keegan, do you want to go first? Yeah, no, totally. Um, so I was originally drawn to mental health advocacy due to, of course, and um, the same way that a lot of people have this background of, uh, due to my own struggles with, with mental health. Um, I've uh, been in and out of psychiatric hospitals and inpatient and outpatient treatment. I have a very long and arduous experience with therapy um, and medications, and I hadn't seen that um, in others my in my age group, and I hadn't seen my other peers going through that. Um, and so when I came specifically to MHATS, but also got more involved just in mental health advocacy as a whole, um, I wanted to show others that it was okay and um, really just fought, try to fight stigma as much as possible because um, it, it runs rampant in our community. And um, understandably, there's been, there are very few, very open proponents of being like um, supportive of mental health in all stages from, from stuff that isn't as like physically obvious to, to, the, to the severely debilitating. Um, and that's just even for adults and for the general population. Um, there's an especially like less of a platform for it for youth um, um, when you arguably you know need it most. Um, and you see all the statistics about you know youth and suicide, and you see all the statistics about youth and, and self harm and depression, and anxiety, and there's loads and loads of numbers. Um, but you don't see the address and the addressing of those numbers and the addressing of those facts. And so I guess that's why I was drawn to it because I mean, it, it's needed. And um, I felt like I could fill that need um, even if just by sharing my own story. When it comes to, to addressing and making sure that people of all backgrounds feel included in this conversation, um, it's, I, the, the best way and the, the way that I um, feel like I'm most equipped, at least um, in my, you know, limited experience um, in like the advocacy world is acknowledging intersectionality and acknowledging that a lot of the traditional roots um, to addressing mental health issues come with a steep financial barrier and come with a steep um, geographical accessibility barrier. Um, and so, as a, like an advocate in the world of mental health, you will definitely get people that come up to you and ask for your advice on how to address a certain thing or what resources there are available. And the best thing that I've found to be able to do is just be conscientious of what resources you're providing because every, like when it comes to, you know, mental health treatment, especially there, everything has strings and everything has these barriers to it. And you have to acknowledge that even though I have the financial access to therapy or I have the financial access to medication, you know, the, the person that I'm speaking to or the person um, who is listening to me doesn't. Um, and the other thing is also um, being aware of you know, where you stand as far as intersectionality and privileges and being able to put those aside and just listen because advocacy oftentimes um, and counterintuitive to what I believe is best or can also best be done when you're just silent. Um, and instead using your, using your abilities to create time and space for those who don't have the time or who don't have the space. Um, Claire. 
That was so well put, Keegan. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, to answer the second question first about intersectionality, that's one of the lessons, that's one of our meeting topics at MHATS is an entire day or two hours dedicated to talking about the barriers to care for a lot of people. And I think MHATS has struggled with being a diverse um, group of people. Um, it's really struggling, it's trying its best, but like one of its lessons really is talking about how even like cultural differences from medical providers and the people, the consumers makes it really difficult for other populations to, you know, get the help they need or, you know, maybe their community or um, is not super talkative about mental health and that makes it harder. Um, and then there's the payment and there's so many things. So we, we talk about that during our intersectionality lesson. And also part of that lesson is just thinking about our own privileges and the identities that we think about most. So we have this whole activity where we put up like, you know, your gender and your race and your housing and your ability and all those sorts of things um, around the room. And then we say, you know, the identity we think about most uh, like during the day is X. And then you walk to that part of the room and you talk about you know, how that makes you feel or why that is. Um, and you think about which ones you think privilege you the most or the ones that you feel like most people don't understand the most. And I think like that's a super great activity to be more self-aware and also aware of, you know, the other people in the room. And usually, I mean, some, some of those categories are visible and some of them aren't. And you definitely learn a lot doing that activity with people because you see like, wow, I never would have guessed that. Or like, you would never know that unless we really specifically asked you that question. And so really, it's great for, you know, learning about yourself, but then also like realizing that your group of people has like a super diverse array of experiences that you wouldn't be able to see. And maybe that isn't incorporated in the story that they tell, but it's still there and a part of them. Um, as for the reason why I got into it, I think, there's quite a few reasons and I can't really figure out like what was the beginning point, but like first I, ex you know, experienced kind of a depressive episode in middle school where I self-harmed and that was super scary and confusing for me. And I don't know whether it was inevitable or not, but I do know that it could have been so much less confusing for me if I had had like any education whatsoever about it. And that really wasn't a lack of resources or you know money or loving parents who weren't in my life or anything like that. It was, you know, purely just something that didn't happen because we never talked about it, um, and it wasn't normal to talk about. So, and it wasn't brought up in schools either in your health classes. Um, so I, you know, I want people to, if they have to have that experience, it's not as confusing and scary. And then more than that, since then I've had many friends experience depression or anxiety or suicidal ideation. And I remember one time, like eighth grade freshman year, somewhere around that time, I watched my friend call up um, one of our friend's parents and informed her that her daughter was suicidal and that she really wanted that mom to know. And for me, that was, I was right there listening to that conversation and it was shocking and like, so inspirational for me because I knew she was being helpful and like I wanted to be that courageous and I want to do that for somebody um and like later in high school one of 
my like my first boyfriend experienced suicidal ideation and I knew he had experienced you know he didn't have great mental health and I didn't realize to what extent and when I finally realized I said like you are you talking to anyone like have you told your parents have you told a teacher and he said no and I told him I don't really remember what happened but I was terrified and basically when I realized that he still hadn't said or said anything to anyone I went to a teacher that we were both close to um and like I try to remind myself that like as scary as it is for me to tell somebody it must be so much more terrifying for the person to tell somebody um and at first he was pissed of course and then afterwards he forgave me and it turned out well and I'm so thankful that it did um but really those experiences made me realize how important mental health is and how so many people are confused and don't tell anyone and you know we just need to like having a conversation about it makes the world so yeah and then I joined empaths so then I was more informed and passionate and stuff like that so it just was a cycle yeah is it true that younger people are now talking more about mental health in general it's hard to get a, a gauge um in my experience um I feel like in in my in my community and in the circle of people that I was around um it's it, it was a lot easier to talk about um just culturally um you know a lot of my friends were white the high school I went to is predominantly white um and there while there were where it was definitely the stigma of oh you know you're depressed like don't end your life ha 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 like it was a little bit easier to kind of chip away at that and maybe start some conversations when I was in high school um and with some of my peers that went to the high school that were in younger years than me uh in in other and that's like you know in for groups and people I know I I personally can't tell and I hope so and I see a lot more material on social media I see a lot more material um with you know like my brother's friends or you know friends that I'm here at in college with I, I see more conversation about it um and that makes me optimistic um I, I wouldn't go around and say you know yes for sure um I think the pandemic has definitely changed that though I think the pandemic has definitely forced people to be a little bit more open and a little bit more honest with how things are going um Claire what do you think yeah I know I think COVID has made a huge difference like I think I think stigma has decreased certainly I also think the same as Keegan where my my bubble of friends is pretty <laughs> it revolves a, a, a lot around MHATs um increasingly so that community honestly brings up you know mental health more than I do um but I think the younger generation is more aware of the problem um like I don't think we've solved the problem I don't think we've gotten very far but I think like the first percent and the last percent is the hardest part of any project and so you know we've made that first step and now we know that it's an issue and we know that it's preventable and that there's things that we can do we know the statistics we've done the research you know we figured out things 
that make it better. And now there's just the long road of actually like implementing those changes and making policy and doing the whole culture shift. So we've kind of done like the first percent, which is big, but also there's a lot to do. And I think it's very, it's very significant to see that, that youth are participating, um, that these conversations are, especially the ones that you see on social media are actually being driven by, you know, middle to upper teens and young 20 somethings. I think it's really important to note that a lot of the stuff that we see as a social, as a social media based society and as, as a social society as a whole is being driven by the younger generations. Um, and I, I think that that trickle down effect is going to be very significant um, and kind of banking on the fact that, you know, when younger kids see older kids do something, they're, they're likely to want to mirror that, whether it's a good thing or <laughs> whether it's a bad thing, um, you know, that's up for debate. But um, I think that there's a lot of hope and I think we've made significant progress. And I think MHATS is a great example that youth will listen and they want to advocate um, they just need to be given the tools and the platform, um, which um, a lot of a lot of adults <laughs> don't really, you know, some of them might be a little bit difficult to convince in that because people think, oh, kids and a platform. Uh Oh, that sounds like, you know, a recipe for disaster and without supervision, maybe it could be. But um, given given the right, you know, combination and stuff, um, I think MHATS is a great example. And there are, you know, other youth organization, organizations around Anchorage that have been great examples that, you know, kids, they want to do something and they want to do something about that. And they see problems and they see needs in their community and they want to act on it. They just need to be, you know, given that first step, they need to be given the hands that helps them up. When you talk about the conversations that you're seeing happen on social media, how deep do those go? Oh, <laughs> oh my. Um, what a great question, Anne. <laughs> um, how familiar are you with Twitter? <laughs> you know, I sometimes get sucked into the Twitterverse, but what are you referencing? I, I have seen so much discourse, um, you know, you know, uh, Twitter threads upon Twitter threads of, of what, what do kids need? How is the pandemic specifically impacting? How are, um, how are specifically our school and educational policies affecting um, kids' mental health? Um, talking about like expectations of teachers and professors at the high school and college level. Talking about the forty-hour work week and how working from home has shown that um, you know you don't need to be in the office. And then asking the question, well if you're not in the office 40 hours a week, does that mean that you, does that, will you see like a consequential, like, or a, a change in like mental health of, you know, office workers? It's, I, I can guarantee you that if you think about it, especially related to the pandemic, you can find a discourse about it somewhere on Twitter. It's wonderful. Um, it's a maze and there's a lot of bad information out there. Um, but it's just seeing people are talking and just seeing people are looking at, especially policies and infrastructure, like social infrastructure changes and looking at those and saying, wait, hold on, something's wrong with this. And it's not us, it's not us as people, it's it's structure. Um, and it's these, these sort of norms and these expectations that we've created that maybe need to be changed. Um, and the pandemic is calling a lot of those into question. Um, 
and specifically, I think a lot of those conversations just end up at mental health um, because at the end of the day, um, a lot of that comes up to just, you know, how we as people are feeling. Um, and uh, I think that's a really, it's a really impressive thing just to watch and see um, happen. I think Twitter is like a great example of great conversation like a lot of great conversations that go into depth about like what can we really do I think Instagram on the other hand is like a totally different platform where I don't really see a lot of depth um in Instagram I know even me as an advocate like yeah I I love seeing like take yourself care five ways you can like rewind today or like these are, you know, these are the ways that you can take care of your mental health and like, you know, it's okay to cry. It's, you know, what all the posts that you see on social media, on Instagram. And I think those are awesome because they've like started a conversation and they've certainly made it much less taboo. I'm not really sure how in depth those conversations are because to be completely honest, I'm not sure if I'm having a bad day, if I see it's okay to have a bad day on my Instagram story that I'm going to feel much better. <laughs> um, but I do appreciate that it's like, I think it's an example and I think it's representation that there's like a larger conversation happening even outside of social media. Like, I think it more reflects that people are thinking about it and talking about it rather than being like the conversation. So it says, it says a lot that mental health awareness posts are getting into mainstream media. Totally. Yeah, I think you know? so too. It's when you start seeing a lot of those, like when you, like, you know, Claire, when you said, oh, like I see, you know, it's okay to have a bad day or, you know, chin up dear, your, your tiara is falling or whatever. You start seeing that on your Instagram feed. It doesn't help. I know Anne's making a face. It doesn't help per se, but it does make me think, you know, five years ago or whatever, when Instagram first came out, that wasn't a thing, you know, it's not that wasn't that conversation, however surface it is, wasn't there. And so to me, when I start seeing stuff get into mainstream media, I start thinking, well, I mean, at least we're going somewhere. I, I say that with so much hesitation and so much caution, but like, I don't know, to me, it kind of means that like more people are paying attention and I, I will take that as a good sign. It's a <laughs> I like how you you distinguish between like the depth of conversations that happen on Twitter, which in some ways I'm still like, hmm, I don't know about that. Um, and versus Instagram, which is, yeah, which is what I think of mostly when I'm like social media talking about mental health being kind of the surface thing. So I, I appreciate that distinction. <laughs> And I think when I mentioned the Twitter thing, it definitely depends on what you're seeing. Again, I'm, you know, my Twitterverse is a bunch of, you know, young mid 20 somethings. Um, a lot of us are a little bit more comfortable with expressing very um, loud opinions on a very public platform and we'll keep following those. Um, I think just Twitter as a platform is more conducive to conversations rather than Instagram where it is a post and you see it and don't necessarily interact with other people as a back and forth as much. That's the reason why I brought that up. I personally do see a lot of conversations. Granted, that is just because I probably similar to Claire have surrounded myself with people who are very passionate about especially mental health um, and how you know power structures can impact mental health. Um, and that, that tends to rile up a very impassioned conversation. 
it'd actually be great if you wanted to jump kind of into that a little bit more about power structures and how they affect mental health. Oh, and I could go all day. I could, <laughs> I really could. And I think Claire could probably do the same thing. Um, remind me, Claire, of the House bill, um, the, the mm-hmm. um, which is well, that, what is the status on that, by the way? Whatever happened? Do you want like a short update or like a long update? A short update just to give me, or I mm-hmm. guess, or Anne, what? Um, I think, start with a short, what are you talking about? And sure, then sure. <laughs> the status right. update. Um, so HB 60 and its sibling bill, SB 80, are House and Senate bills in the Alaska legislature. Um, and we tried to pass them two years ago and didn't pass because it got shut down and there was priority for COVID. Um, and this last year, which was the beginning of a new legislative session, we reintroduced it to the House and Senate as HB 60 and SB 80. Um, And it hasn't, it's kind of gone through some weird changes and maybe not good ones, we can talk about that, but um, it's kind of paused because it didn't get through by the end of the session. And so this spring, which is the second half of the legislative session, it will maybe perhaps go through a few more committees and to the floor and stuff and maybe it'll pass. So we're kind of like midway. And so those bills, correct me if I'm wrong, Claire, would introduce a curriculum for mental health education in public schools around the state? Sorry, yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so they, would, they wouldn't mandate mental health education in K through 12 schools, but they would encourage it, which is a distinction that you know there's controversy about it but um it would basically set guidelines for what that education and curriculum would look like um and that way each district could kind of figure out what works best for them mm-hmm. and so i guess when the first thing that to me that comes to um structural changes um is structure and education because um especially public ed- school education is so highly regulated um, and to introduce curriculum changes can, as Claire has described, mean you have to jump through so many hoops, um, which, you know, I, I can talk about that too. Um, you know, it, it brings up so many hoops. Um, and so uh, I, when I, the, that's the first thing that I think about, mostly just because my, I testified um, when I think the House bill was reintroduced. Um, and so that was kind of fresh on my mind. Um, as far as more general outside of the school system, I think of, um, I, th- I think a lot about healthcare, um, and I think a lot about the cost of healthcare and the, you know, kind of the healthcare industry is what you might want to say, um, and how a lot of insurance has, ex- is extremely picky about what is covered as far as um, treatment options go um, for, you know, mental health. And a lot it's a, can be a, a lot harder um, to, if you have a mental health emergency, especially, and you need to go to inpatient, you need to go to a crisis center. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, fear around, what's the bill gonna look like? Is my insurance gonna take it? Whereas, you know, for physical health issues, like, you know, you broke a leg or you need, um, you need your prescription medication for your uh, after your surgery or something. Um, there's a little bit less fear um, because for the f- people who do have insurance, which again still isn't even everybody, there's still that question because it's one of mental health isn't considered something that's like a critical 
a critical health situation. I don't know the correct even analogy. even though it's even though like even though suicide is. is one of the leading causes of death. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a health it's a health outcome, just the yeah. same as physical health issues. And there are also like you know more indirect causes. Like I was mentioning, um, um, like labor laws and forty hour week work week. There's a lot of um, impact on like burnout and exhaustion and these kinds of high expectations we set for labor in our country and um this idea that if if i'm not working if i'm not you know constantly doing something um to either provide for my family provide for myself then i'm a failure um that kind of mindset that's kind of encouraged by um uh, labor standards in the country um it's capitalists yes capitalism um i didn't know how how outright we wanted to go here um the last conversation was all about how capitalism is really ultimately (laughs) um, like made mental wellness almost impossible especially for people who are in groups that are oppressed and yeah so precisely um especially the linkage of health insurance with employment um is has especially become something uh that isn't really talked about and there's a lot of things i think the biggest and the thing that makes you know mental health and the issues with mental health most prevalent is it is tied to issues that you wouldn't look at this issue you wouldn't look at labor laws and initially think oh yes that can bring up some issues and um you know really have take a toll on people's mental health you know, if you just look at something surface level, if I myself a year ago would have looked looked at you know that that thread a year um, a year ago without like you know some of the knowledge that I've come to accumulate after a year more of living and existing um, and a year longer of mental health advocacy, I wouldn't have thought that. Um, and I think that is kind of one of those things where people don't recognize the prevalence and how there's a lot of aspects of our society is specifically a, like a western capitalist society that is just not built to to protect your mental health or your physical health honestly like let's be real um <laughs> the worker no not a priority here but anyways that can be a different conversation so the one catch i've noticed claire i'm sorry i've kind of gone off the rails a little bit but one thing i've noticed a lot about self-help books is that they're mainly geared towards increasing your productivity. Um, And why are you increasing your productivity? You know, is it to benefit yourself or is it to benefit your job? Um, And that's not not mental health. That's not helping yourself. That's helping your employer. Um, And that's my thought on self-help books. (laughs) Um, I I think that's the thing. I think that's the thing is a lot of them are marketed as self-help when it's really how to increase your productivity. Um, but that's not, does that help your mental health in the long run? Um, you know, you can answer that for yourself, but Claire. I don't know. Yeah. I just think there's certainly like that tension. I think like right now there's totally the culture of the productivity culture of like here, are you know, there's the books about like how self-help, but then there's the books about like, here's here are the apps to make you most productive. Here are your your scheduling and your managing apps that are gonna keep all your lists and your things to do in one place. Here's your count. You know, there's like, 
how can you like get more work done in these 15 minutes? Like what are these, you know, there's so many things out there to help you be more productive. Well, at the same time, people are saying, take your day off, you know, give yourself a spa day. And like, how do you, how as a consumer, how as a, a, a citizen, as a, a human, do I like see both of those things and know exactly what to do? Like, it's a tough situation to be put in. And um, like, honestly, even I struggle because it's like part of me, I think there's a culture where it's like, if you're not doing anything, like, what are you doing with your life? Kind of like, you have to be busy. You ha- Like when I feel like I haven't filled my day with things to do, I feel unproductive and I associate unproductiveness unprodu- with being unhappy. Like, I, I really think like, if I really self-reflect at the end of the day, if I'm thinking like, what did I do today? And I'm like, gosh, I did nothing. I feel really bad about myself. And so like, why aren't there books about like how to separate feeling productive and feeling happy or like happy about yourself? Um, that's what I want to know. <laughs> and there's not really yeah. a lot about that out there. Well, and that would be a, that would be a real contender for a book on mental health, you know, <laughs> how to, how to really untie yourself from the, this, this, like, you know, worker mindset, um, that a lot of us have been, you know, raised in. Um, I, I think, Sumanetta, if you're asking about like mindfulness books, um, like, you know, those like meditation or like how to be mindful or like those mindfulness journals, I don't have any, I don't know. I guess I haven't given a lot of thought to those books. They don't really rub me the wrong way quite yet. And if those work for you, awesome cool I don't know how I feel about people profiting off of those that makes me feel a little icky but if if you really if at the end of the day you're like oh man I am so stressed I can feel myself getting anxious I can feel myself getting stressed I'm going to sit down with a nice book on how to be mindful or like a mindfulness journal like one of those structured ones or whatever you do you I guess I don't Claire do you have an opinion (laughs) about those anybody have an opinion about those I've got one that was like drawing prompts and I kind of enjoy it. <laughs> but I think I think there's slightly different things. Like when I was like asking the question, I, I had in mind sort of like this health health book then. And you I agree with you. Like that's just like to make you more efficient, to make you more productive. And quite frankly, your psyche in capitalism, even more so in neoliberalism, is capital. Mm-hmm. So it's the new form of capital. And so, but when you talk about like mindfulness and all that kind of thing, well, I'm not, wasn't exactly referring to that. That is just more like a secular practice. And so in that sense, secular practice like that, they're more like a, about process, uh, awareness, presence, and there is no mm-hmm. uh, productive output. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, coming up of those. Yeah, but... No, I really appreciated what you guys said about that. And I, you know, and it's uh, refreshing that I guess I'm a little older than you, but you're so articulate. And um, I was also like thinking about if like all the things are around in the internet too, that you, you know, we touched upon earlier are facilitating uh, you being such a young person, be, you know, people and being so articulate and be so good, you know, at really like untangling, unfolding these issues. Yeah. And Claire, I mean, I don't know if you can speak to this too, but I am 
truly, I, I am lucky to have been able to come this far with mental health advocacy. Um, and lucky that I still have connections with people like Claire who can, you know, invite me to be a part of these conversations. Um, because it's truly, it's the culture. And frankly, if I hadn't stumbled into, into MHATS, um, one fateful Snapchat conversation, um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have come this far, um, or been as articulate. And it's, it's really about access and experiences. And I, I wish it was a little bit more widespread and I wish it was easier to find, you know, like, like safe, honest forums on the internet talking about, you know, youth in mental health advocacy, um, because you do have to weed through a lot of crap um, and you do have to weed through a lot of triggering content. Um, and I was lucky enough, lucky enough to stumble straight into the safe community and struggle or stumble straight into the supportive community. Um, and I don't know, I, a lot of people won't, won't get there and they'll be turned away, um, which is really unfortunate. Um, yeah. I totally agree. I don't think I would have come this far without MHATS or without, I mean, really any of the experiences I had related to mental health, but I think one thing that MHATS taught me that we haven't quite touched on yet already is like just how contagious vulnerability is and like how powerful it is. Like I know there's so much about me being here because of my privilege and being able to be a part of that group and me being able to access it. But also like once you're there, one experience that I've had is just, and this is true for adults and youth, is just when you open up about something and the moment's right and you share your story, um, it's so, so likely that the other person is going to open up and share with you about a similar experience that they had. And when I first experienced that, it is it feels shocking and then it feels so comforting and so relieving. And it's almost, um, I, I just realized how special it was at MHATS. And then you just kind of continue that in your life because you realize when they're vulnerable, I can be vulnerable. When I can be vulnerable, they can be vulnerable. And that, that I mean, what's even more amazing too is that like that started with my friends in a setting like peer to peer, but then that turned into me with my family and like the reciprocal nature of being vulnerable even within my family was amazing and crazy and cool. And like, I think that's really what's gotten to me, um, gotten me to where I am too. Um, and like, I just wanna, yeah, kudos to vulnerability, yay. And maybe also spreads to some of the adults and older generations in the community. Um, there's a lot of conversation around youth and mental health not a lot of conversation around like especially the older generations there's still a lot of stigma especially when I talk to my parents or my grandparents about you know you don't talk about you know a history of mental illness no you're not going to get that out of my grandparents are you kidding you know um and you know I can I don't want the burden to be on youth but I would hope that you know seeing this kind of pattern of vulnerability and maybe one day you can or even me one day when I, when I get up the courage to be vulnerable to those older members of my family, I can maybe see some reciprocity and get that, get that wheel going. I think, um, 
I think it's, I think it's a valuable, um, I think vulnerability is a really valuable thing and, uh, it's, it's hard, but once you get into it, um, it can be something that brings about a lot of change, um, in, in your community. Wow. Well, uh, we're getting close to the end of our episode today. And one thing that we ask all our guests is to uh, pose a question to our listeners. What's one question you'd like to leave our listeners with? So I guess I would ask any listeners, have you checked in on yourself today? Have you really sat and asked how you're doing and not how you're doing on, you know, tasks for work? not how you're doing on your homework for the week. How are you doing? And just taking a second. Stop and and be honest with yourself because nobody's going to be more, nobody's going to be more honest with you than you can be with yourself, especially with how you're doing. Nobody can tell you how you're feeling. How are you doing? I guess to kind of tag onto Keegan's question when was the last time you checked in with one of your loved ones and how long does it really take and how much work does it require for you to ask how are you feeling today how are you 